How long has it been since you had poutine? Well, maybe three weeks ago, I had a version of poutine. Did that didn't give you heartburn? <laughs> Entering the 1997-1998 NBA season, the Chicago Bulls had won five championships in the previous seven years. But as they sought their second three-peat, the future of the dynasty was in doubt. Not really. As preparations began for the 1997-98 season, Jordan and the Bulls granted unprecedented access to a film crew for the entire year. As Michael Jeffrey Jordan was preparing to conclude his time with the Bulls, Three friends in Toronto were about to graduate from university. This is their jibba-jabba as they go through the ESPN Netflix docuseries The Last Dance. Welcome to Jordan Ain't No Joke, Episode 5. I'm your host, Sammy Yunan. As for today's introductions, since these episodes of Jordan Ain't No Joke covers the end of the Bulls Dynasty and the end of The Last Dance, we'll focus on endings. Tupac died on September 13, 1996, while Biggie died on March 9, 1997. Which of these tragic endings hit you the hardest? Hey everyone, I'm JT, and uh, I would have to say I, uh, I would go with Biggie. Like Biggie was the, uh, the greater loss uh, uh, for me uh, in terms of uh, his impact on, uh, on hip-hop. Not to take any, too much away from uh, Tupac, but I think Biggie... Uh, had a much greater impact. Yo, I'm DC, and I'll have to say the same. For me, Biggie had just more of a musical impact on me around that time. And um, always kind of been a little bit more East-leaning. Well, yeah, we're all uh, East Coasters, so I think that was that would have been natural for us to, <laughs> to get into that yeah. uh, beef and, and, and side with the East. We, but we were also in Toronto then, so we didn't have like we weren't part of the East Coast West Coast beef. Like we saw it, but we could also just chill. You know what I mean? Like we didn't have to get involved. We were chilling with Micro, Maestro Fresh West. So it was all, yeah. it was all. Oh, back, yeah, right. We yeah. were sliding yeah. our backbones. Yeah, <laughs> but we still identify eastward, right? Like either culturally being Chinese, uh, being more in the East Coast of things like you relate more to like a new york style of things as opposed to california and just being from scarborough yeah, too. i mean california was you know kind of this fantasy land across the continent that you know we consume culture from but didn't really seem attainable in any way or or um you know something that we could uh, uh really you know get into the same way that we would with the east coast stuff or identify with. Yeah, well, the New York City stuff, too, was, like, tougher and rougher. Because I think they had the winters like we did, right? So yeah, exactly. you kind of are forced to, like, work indoors. Where I find, like, when you're, like, in L.A. or California, you start typing up that screenplay. And you're like, it's kind of nice outside. Maybe I'll just dip into the pool for a bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. So there's something to be said about seasons, right? I think the se- the seasonal uh, time changes uh, have a really big impact on the way 
you think and the person you become, uh, I think. Whereas in California, it's kind of sunny more or less uh, throughout the year. And, uh, you know, those Canadian winters, you get inside, you can become more con- con- contemplative. Um, and it's, uh, it's a different, different thing. And that reflected in the NBA as well. The East, uh, Eastern Conference was always like bang it, bruised, defense, low, low scoring. First West one to co- 80. West con- Western. That's right. <laughs> Remember that? First one to 80 in the yeah. East, first one to 120 in the West. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Western Conference, run and gun, fun and sun. Showtime. That's right. So we'll keep going with uh, Showtime and uh, pick up on uh, episodes uh, 9 and 10 of The Last Dance. This is the end, my friend. Uh, So we'll start off with 9, and as per our tradition, who's got a title for episode 9? I mean, one of the titles that I uh, I came up with that just introduces the whole episode is Black is the new black. Because first, like, Reggie learned as a rookie not to mess with black Jesus. Yes. And then in the, when they faced off with each other, you know, black cat was really introduced. And that, that was, that's interesting because it's not really a, you know that's a, a nickname that's associated with Jordan, but people, it doesn't stick with everybody mm-hmm. really. Uh, Miller is trying to make it work though. Like he's like a kid with like a new pair, like some slang or something. Like he's trying to make it work. Like everybody, let's use the word fresh. Like you know what I mean? Like let's refer to Jordan right. as the black cat. I'm like, I know we could just call him Jordan or like Air Jordan or the other things. Like we're good. <laughs> Thanks, man, for coming out. <laughs> what about you, Jake? For episode nine, did you have a title? Uh, I think you would. I'd have to quote uh, MJ and say uh, a great title would have been. They still got to come through Chicago. Yes, because uh, <laughs> you know that the end of episode eight uh, introduced uh, the Pacers rivalry, and uh, we start with uh, Reggie Miller in episode nine, and uh, that tough, you know, that tough battle that they they had, and um, there there was that one uh, loss where uh, reporters asked uh, Michael about you know his thoughts on on the next couple of games or whatever, and Michael's just unfazed that killer look that killer stare just like still gotta come to chicago i mean i don't know how any of those guys that kind of thing doesn't put the fear of god into any of those opponents um uh, he was just so single-minded and he was a term and we've said this before but he was the terminator <laughs> like just yes. no emotion he's like yeah come on through man mm-hmm. do you miss those Pacers teams like we talked about before how like uh, the Knicks had some really interesting teams and we kind of we hated the Knicks but they had some decent teams Um, the bad boys obviously won two in a row but we never really ever talk about like the Pacers they kind of seem like they got left off of the conversation is that fair or do you guys miss the Pacers or have a hankering or craving or care about the Pacers well it's one of those things just another team that was in Jordan's way, and he had to just dash them out. <laughs> but if, when you go back and you think about it, it's like there's there are incarnations, different kind of rosters that are. When you look back, you're like, oh, that, that was a pretty neat roster, mm-hmm. right? Back in the day when they had, um, oh, what's his name, Chuck? Uh, they call him the Rifleman. Oh, shoot, um, I got a blank too. <laughs> okay, we'll call him the Rifleman. Okay, Chuck, I forgot what his name is, but shoot, but yeah, there's there was that. I mean, Reggie was always uh, a mainstay, but. You had Chuck, and he had a quite 
he always got fired up. He would get in hot streaks. Mm-hmm. And then even just to this this team that they faced in '98, that was a really good team, right? You had Mark Jackson, you had the uh, this, you had um, Jalen Rose, Chris Mullen, Chuck. Per- Thank you, Chuck Person. Um, yeah, Jalen Rose. Uh, they had Chris Mullins. Like it was a deadly team, actually. Oh, for sure, and that hey, this goes back to uh, some of the other episodes too, where they talked to uh, these other Bulls rivals, and um, I think a lot of them felt that uh, they had really great teams that just completely have been overshadowed by uh, Jordan and the Bulls. And uh, you know, watching this series and looking back and seeing some of those familiar faces, and it's like, oh yeah, man, I forgot how good Stockton was. <laughs> You know, like yes. Stockton and Malone, too, like that duo was, uh, they were amazing. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, especially Stockton, I, I, I'd completely forgotten just how good he was. Uh, I don't think he ever went, won a championship, but he was, nope. uh, no. he was solid, man. And especially in those series against the Bulls. Well, he's all-time assist That's leader, right, so, yeah. And it doesn't seem like, I think it's at, at a point where it's, he's hard to chase. Yeah. Just for that and stat. he's like one of the top five or top ten in terms of steals all time as well. That's right. right. Like so, That's he right. was like, yeah, he he's deceptively like he, he looks like an ordinary white dude, right? <laughs> like somebody that shops at Costco. <laughs> There's even f- footage of him like when he was going to the game that, he, that they were going to play. Like he's got the minivan. The kids are coming <laughs> yes. out. Yeah, he looks like a suburban <laughs> doctor. Like yeah, yeah. And Sammy, you had mentioned that in the dream, like in the dream team documentary, like when they were over over in Barcelona, yeah. everybody wanted everybody's autograph, but like Stockton's just walking <laughs> through, just like another tourist. Yeah, because the like magic would come out, and all the people would be screaming magic, magic, and then of course Jordan would try to get out, and it'd be all Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. Barkley would come out, it's Barkley, Barkley, and then Stockton would come out, and everybody's, I don't know who that is. So they just waiting for like Larry yeah. Bird or somebody to come out, and it was just like, but he's also rocking the shorts too. Like he liked those shorts off the court. <laughs> this... Yes. <laughs> what about you, Sam? Do you have a title for this episode? Yeah, I call this one "Flu and Blue." Mm. Obviously, for the flu game, which they mentioned, but also because uh, blue, which was just kind of like the emotion, because it also focused on Steve Kerr's arc, which I don't think a lot of people know, uh, mm-hmm. with his dad passing away and how his dad passed away and stuff like that. That was a really good question that the director asked, which was like, did you and Jordan ever talk about your dads? Because both of their dads got shot. That was Kerr's tears now. You know what I mean? Like the last couple of episodes when we saw Jordan talk about like winning and like needing a break and all that kind of stuff. This was Kerr's emotion. And it was like, oh man, that's heavy. Yeah, I have to say like, I I didn't know much about Kerr's uh, family history. And um, I wondered, you know, why this storyline became so prominent at such a late stage in the series. And, you know, upon first watch, I felt like this kind of felt like it was coming out of nowhere, but then you see why the filmmakers did it because it was really setting up the final episode and what a key role Kerr played in, in leading up to the, you know, that, you know, the big win. So uh, it just made the ending that much more emotional and fulfilling because he, they'd set up Kerr 
uh, and his backstory in such a beautiful way, in a in touching way, and then connected it to MJ as well. So I, I just, I, I thought it was fantastic and, and just really heartbreaking. Yeah, that section was really well done. Like, I think the way they went through all the, some of the other players, maybe besides Scotty, they just kind of like, <laughs> kind of breezed through it. Not enough, like, didn't sit on it enough to kind of really get a sense of their emotions. Uh, well, Scotty and Dennis, but um, yeah, that was, I was tearing up mm-hmm. when I saw us Curve talking about it. Yeah, and Kerr has got such an unusual, like, background. Not even just that his dad got shot over in Beirut. One of the themes throughout the whole, especially these last two or three episodes, was that Kerr was just as aggressive and just as, like, (laughs) he played angry, angry, angry young man, just as much as Jordan did. He just didn't have the ability to translate it on the court. That, but that pushed him. That got Kerr the success. That's why he won the three championships with Jordan. And later on, he won the fourth one with San Antonio the next year. So he got a four-peat, which Jordan never got. But that was what drove Kerr. That's really special because you don't get a lot of players like that, especially players that are role players and things like that. So I found episodes 9 and 10, not maybe 10, but this episode, I found it a little bit slightly unbalanced. You know how before we were talking about the way that it was jumping around in the time? time stream and stuff like this so sometimes even we would get lost a little bit what what series this was or when what nick's battles this was but i found this one that they spent a little bit too much time on like the actual in-game play do you know what i mean i kind of wish that they mm-hmm. had because there wasn't as much talking heads and interviews and stuff in this one that balanced it out did you find the same thing or did you find the balance okay for episode nine in general i i thought this was one of the more better stacked episodes they it just gave a lot to you but it did start off with like the whole pacer section was just a lot of in-game stuff and not not enough like behind the scenes or just besides interviewing reggie miller um and you know jordan kind of responding to it yeah there's a lot of in-game playing and the 97 uh section with the utah stuff that kind of felt like it was just breezing through with game footage uh and it was a weird there was no real segue into the Utah game. They went from the Pacers series into 97 Utah. And then through, from the 97 Utah, they, they went over to Steve Kerr's story. So, yeah, yeah, like it, it was top-heavy in game yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think it, it almost feels like they may have run out of runway and they needed to sort of wrap it up. Because I think the Jazz could have used a lot more sort of time, like you're saying, in terms of the storylines off the court um, leading up to the games, which they did with a lot of the other uh, big battles over the years that the that the um, Bulls faced. Um, it just seemed to me that maybe they were just running out of time. They had to quickly get to what was ultimately promised in episode one was the, you know, the big sixth uh, championship win. But, you know, ultimately, it, it did have an emotionally satisfying, you know, conclusion. So I, I guess it, it might be a bit of a nitpick, but um, but I can definitely see where, where they may have uh, maybe run out of things to say uh, outside of the games. So far, we've talked about Kerr and we've talked about Stockton. Do you guys have a favorite white NBA player? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. Mm. Larry Bird is an obvious one, yeah, but we was, can put Larry okay, Bird aside. Yeah, I was going like, to say you'd have to put Larry Bird aside. Because I, I don't mind Chris Mullen. 
yeah, like and and McHale, you got yeah, you got to put those guys Darren aside. McHale, yeah. Um, it's, it's funny, but then once you get past dudes like that, then everybody else is sort of like they're a little comic relief <laughs> in a way. Steve Nash, right? Well, uh, are we talking about in the past or just overall? I'll give you um, overall. But mainly like an older player too, though. Like if there's somebody like, I mean, we are kind of talking about the 90s. But if there is like uh, in general, if there is a great white hope out there. I think uh, Tony Kukoc was a big great white hope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for (laughs) Kraus. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. There's always, there's always gonna be dudes who are just excellent players. But if you, if you say your favorite player, I don't. It's hard to kind of say like you, you want to root for the underdog white dude because most of them are underdogs. Yeah. And it's, so it's kind of like you know, I think of guys like even Tom Chambers in a way. Yeah. Marley, you know, Dan Marley. Was, yes. I think he's a guy who people don't talk about enough. Thunder Dan. Because that guy, he was about six six. He could defend. He could score. He could shoot the three, and he had a his game was tight. You know, like it wasn't like when you you would watch guys like Rex Chapman who had a decent game, but there's just didn't have the same level as a Marley. But Marley never reached like that superstardom kind of a, a level. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody got like their favorite white dude? <laughs> what were you, Sam? Thunder Dan is a good one. Yeah, I mean, I know we kind of took him off the list, but I always just was partial to Chris Mullen. I always thought he got a raw deal in uh, yeah. Golden State. It, he was like the Dominique of the West Coast, basically. Dominique Wilkins. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. they never really yeah. properly build around him. And even when he did get to the Pacers, he was kind of like, he had a little bit less in the tank at that point, you know? Yeah. yeah. So Well-respected, but not much love. No. Or not loved enough. It's funny, like, um, I know now, like, the last couple of years, Golden State's been in the finals, and they've won a number of years, and Curry and all this stuff. People forget there were some dark days for Golden State back then. For decades? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, like, everyone's celebrating now, but I'm like, yo, man, keep that past alive. Yeah. Like, I think prior to their first win a few years back, it had been 40 years since they won a championship. Yeah. Well, one team that finally got into the finals was the Utah Jazz. And then, of course, uh, this is the first time that they play the Bulls. We got to talk about the flu game or uh, the food yes. poisoning game. Because so, this was the other highlight of, and this is why my episode is called Flu and Blue. This was an insane story. I, I mean, I had no idea that this was actually the food poisoning game and not the flu game. Uh, I don't know if there were whispers about that before, uh, Docs, but that is some, like, ancient Rome, like, (laughs) poison the Caesar kind of shit, man. Like, it was unbelievable. And the look on, uh, uh, is it Tim Grover, his trainer's face, when he's telling the story, it was like, he, he could, it was almost like he was back in that hotel room telling that story. He's mm-hmm. like, why do you need five guys to deliver a pizza? He goes, nothing about it re- seemed right. And then Mike eats the whole pizza on his own. I mean, there's something there in terms of like, people like Michael Jordan had this sort of ability to sort of vacuum you into his world. And so I'm surprised that 
no one uh, said anything to him. You know, now in hindsight, they all seem to say like, none of that seemed right. But in the moment, I, I feel like maybe he was just too big a personality for them to say something to, to him about uh, how off this whole thing seemed. Well, well, you like you really think like the Mormon mafia like try to put a hit on Jordan? Yes, <laughs> they sprinkled some like ghost peppers on that. I don't shit. know, man. I think it's possible. I, I'm not one for bit, uh, <laughs> conspiracy theories, but that none of that added up. Well, I mean, you know, the director tells like uh, the more extended story okay. of the situation doing his media circuits, right? So, I mean, the whole idea behind the pizza was because uh, Mike Jordan's crew they all ate dinner without him, and so Jordan didn't have dinner that night, and so he was starving by the time like that whatever ten thirty rolled around, and that the only place that was op- that was available to them was this Pizza Hut. Oh, it was and Pizza so Hut on top of that. Oh. It was Pizza <laughs> Hut. Yeah. He was already doomed to start with. <laughs> it wasn't the uh, the uh, the mom and pop Mormon pizza shop down the corner. <laughs> no, ended up being Pizza Hut, and um, so yeah. And then when the, apparently once the pizza came, the only reason why Jordan was the only one who ate it was because he spat on the pizza. <laughs> what? <laughs> he was so pissed off that the other dudes ate before without him. There's like, nobody else is eating this pizza. What? <laughs> what? That is insane. So. Okay. Well. So maybe, maybe, maybe Mike got sick from his own bacteria. I don't know. Or, 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 his, or his own hubris. Like, it feels like he, uh, <laughs> he may have brought that on himself, obviously, it seems now. Wait, so Danny, you just, no. you don't think it, like somebody poisoned it? You think it was just maybe the pizza was not cooked or was it the flu or what do you, what are you suggesting? Because the story, like the pizza guy came out and he told the story, his version oh, of the did. story. But the, yeah, but did. some of this yeah. stuff has been floating around for a while too though. So it's okay. We can let it roll. I would just tell it. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. No. So yeah. So what do you, where do you stand then? Do you think it was food poison or do you think that the cheese was not properly cooked or? Who knows, right? But I mean, it could have been the thing he ate that afternoon for all we know. But, you know, the pizza guy, he actually came out and told, like, to do his media circuit. You know, I mean, well, the media has been curious, so they tracked him down. And he told the story that he was actually a Bulls fan. And when he was working at Pizza Hut, and they knew the call came in for the Marriott Hotel, which they knew, like, a lot of Bulls players were staying at. And he's like, oh, shoot, like, maybe this could be for one of the Bulls. No, you, none of you guys, none of you fuckers are making this because you're all rooting for Utah. I'm going to like make sure this pizza gets made right. So he said he made sure the pizza was cleanly done. And then he went with the delivery guy. And so he's, he remembers there's only two of them at the door. Now, whether like other hotel staff were there with them to escort them to the door, you know, he doesn't remember that part, but, uh, so he's saying the pizza's clean, man. I didn't try to poison the dude. If anybody was gonna, po- wouldn't have been me. No, man, I don't believe him. Hundred <laughs> percent, that pizza was poisoned. They put something on there. I think it was poisoned too. In, in fact, I, I think uh, this September there's gonna be a new ten-part do- docu series about the pizza. <laughs> <laughs> he delivers. <laughs> each episode's about each slice of that yes. pie. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I, I don't. I think it. I think something was. I think it would be so random for him to get that sick unless something something happened. I just feel. It, but that's just me, you know, indulging myself in the conspiracy theory of, of it. I mean, it possibly very most likely was just a coincidence. Uh, the other thing to think about, nope. the other thing to think about is that, you know, if Michael's, like, I wonder what, I'm assuming his diet was pretty clean, especially during the playoffs. So if he had suddenly decided to just wolf down an entire pizza on his own, I imagine that could have messed him up too. Yeah. Also, did, did the, did the yeah, pizza guy possible. mention what, what was on the pizza? <laughs> just out here. He, he said it was a pepperoni pizza. Oh, okay. This is getting even weirder. Because yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty simple, that's a standard pizza. Like, there's yeah. something fancy happening there. No, but all it takes is, like, dude not washing his hands after whatever, wiping his nose. Right. <laughs> And you're done. Or his butt. Or his butt. It most likely his butt in this yeah. situation. Yeah, man. <laughs> I don't trust him. Um, but at the end of the day, Michael did play. And uh, and that what ended up becoming a legendary game for the ages. So what do you guys have to say about the game itself? It's weird because there's two things. One is, yeah, Jordan, he just willed that victory. But then the other thing then is like, Utah ended up losing that series, so it doesn't speak too highly of them. <laughs> like you couldn't even beat like a flu Jordan. You know what I mean? Like that was technically your one shot, your opportunity to like do it, and you couldn't even pull that out. So there's a commentary on the Jazz as well that a lot of people don't kind of acknowledge. I'll just say it is weird, and I don't know if, if the Jazz's coach was being facetious or not, but he, he, you know, he was being interviewed after the game, and he's like, oh, "I didn't know he was sick." Am I the only one who didn't know he was sick? And uh, he just seemed completely unaware. And that too, I think, maybe says something about about the team. Yeah. So the coach was Jerry Sloan. He's the first Chicago Bull to get his number retired. And so he, the way he played is the way that Jordan played in the flu game. He didn't have a lot of talent, but he had all heart and all guts, and he was all elbows and he kind of pushed and was like a bruiser, and he just kind of rumbled through things. Sorry, he was like a seven-time, like, all-defensive team yeah. kind of dude. And he was like, he's Jordan's size, 6'6", six, six, oh. 195, but he averaged, like, high rebounds too. And so that's the thing. Like, I, I wish they, I wish people asked him about that or, like, drew that analogy, like, after that game because I felt that that was, like, very similar to his game. And, like... I think he was just shocked again. Like that's why I'm saying like the, the one of the sub narratives was like the jazz suck because I'm like, if you can't beat Jordan with the flu or food poisoning, I'm going to go with food poisoning. Then it's like, you guys need to like have a heart to heart. Like you guys need to have a team meeting and sort this out. I think you also get the sense that Jerry Sloan had a bit of a dry wit as well, because then in the following year, he, there was a similar kind of press conference where he said some funny stuff that wouldn't get into. Yeah, that's later. right. Yeah. Um, I, I do feel like uh, watching him, him, watching Michael play in that game, I, well, one of the things that really struck me, and they've done this before, is the strategy involved in having him play that sick. The whole idea for him was like, just use me as a decoy. And they did that before in, in other series as well, or after. And it's just a, another great insight into sort of 
what goes into playing the game itself. There's a lot. It is of, a chess match. Is a exactly. There's a lot of uh, strategy and thought that goes into this stuff. That you know, we may see sort of you know practices where they're shooting jump shots and and practicing running up and down the court, but you rarely get an insight into the mental part of it and the the stuff you gotta you know the the basketball smarts part of it. Yeah, that flu game. Jordan had thirty eight points. Seven boards, five assists, three steals, and That's one crazy. block. So Jerry Sloan is right. <laughs> like, was he sick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's a, it's a valid it question. Really like, I mean, I think it might be valid that he did not know because if he's, you know, if they're in deep prep mode for the for this game, he may not be paying attention to what's going on in the press. And then you know, Jordan plays the way he does. So why would he think <laughs> that he was sick? You know what's kind of weird, like a kind of an off note. That team, uh, that Bulls team, one of the members was Bison Daly. You remember Bison Daly? No, I don't remember. I'm drawing a blank. Tell me. Bison Daly, he was um, so he was a player who came in, and he wasn't named Bison Daly when he came in. His name was something Williams. It, I'm just drawing a blank right now. And um, it sounds like Meta World Peace when he came in as Ron Artest. Yeah, but he ended up having a fairly troubled life uh, later on. And then there was this whole mystery about his, he, he disappeared basically. Oh, yeah. And all they knew was that him and his brother, and I think a female companion, went off on a boat. That scene, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So and it was only, I think, the brother who came back. Oof. But. Yeah, I forgot how that went. And he, he, That's another documentary right there. And he was well, part, yeah. he was part yeah, of that Bulls sure. team. He was part of that oh. Bulls team. It was a really short stay, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. How does how does um, Jordan's flu game and that will and that domination? How do we compare that to some of the like Pippin's ailments throughout the series? The migraines, the bad back, those kind of issues. I know Pippin did like the best that he could, and in a way, Pippin like represents us how we normally would play, <laughs> or calling sick at work or whatever it is. Like, I I'm not feeling it today. I'm out. Whereas Jordan's like, "Yo, we're doing this." So, how do you compare those two, or can you compare the two? I mean, I think what it comes down to that that is literally the thing that sets Jordan apart. You know that 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 is that final piece that sets greatness apart from, you know, the average or even the exceptional for Jordan to suck it up and play through the, the worst of it. When sometimes Scotty didn't, and, you know, mind you now, okay. When Scotty messed up his back, that's just a purely mechanical thing. Like your body mechanics, like you, you may not be able to physically do something. That's one thing. But then, you know, there, as we know in, in earlier seasons where he basically decided he was not going to play because the ball was going to come to him. I mean, that that shows, you know, the lack of um, leadership that I think Jordan, you know, had in spades. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, it's kind of a bit of bad luck for Scotty. Um, like Jake was mentioning, different ailments, right? All the times that Scotty kind of, couldn't do it. He had the migraine. Like literally, he feels like he can't see. 
and he feels like throwing up all the time. If you feel like you can't see, then you can't really get out there. <laughs> the back, I mean, we have to give Scotty credit for the for when he had back spasms in '98. Like he he gutted it out. Mm-hmm. He would go to the go into the locker room, try to get it fixed, and then he came back out and became the decoy. So, but I mean, I mean that that does make that does separate Jordan like it, what Jake says. It separates him from most any other superstar out there just the will is so strong and it kind of brings me back to when they were uh in the pacers uh section it was like right before game seven he's sitting there in the the locker room he's just chilling with a mod and it's just quiet amongst everybody and a mod just just kind of out of nowhere says some can and some can't yes. and jordan's like some can, and some yep. can. It's just the way it is. But finish the line after that. He's like, "Don't tell Scotty Burrell that." <laughs> <laughs> Remember? He's like, yep. "We yep. already know that he can't." So. Where's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Scotty Burrell? Uh, even worse than Scotty Burrell is Byron Russell. <laughs> we got. <laughs> We got to talk about Byron Russell because that dude, he set himself up for failure. <laughs> yep. Marked for death at rookie season. Yeah. Like, why don't you have the will to live? Like, he just basically committed suicide. Yep. And that, that was one of the other titles that I came up with for this episode was Byron Russell makes the list. As the episode recalls, uh, that's when Jordan was retired at the time. He's just coming in to kind of practice and hang out with the Bulls. And the Bulls are just about to face Utah. And so he just went to say hello to to uh, to Carl uh, Malone and Stockton. And Byron had to open his big mouth. What did he say? He said, uh, "Why something about why did you retire? Uh, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to guard you or something like that. Like he was mm-hmm. like. Yep. I wanted to shut you down, basically, was what yeah, he's yeah. saying. Like, like I, I wanted the chance to show you how good I am, is what he's basically saying. Right. He was trash-talking Jordan, which, A, you never do, and then, B, he also probably got a little cocky because Jordan was retired at that time. Yeah. So he thought he got, he got a little soft or maybe the body wasn't fit, so he, yeah. he got double cocky. Oh, he ain't coming back. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. So, but, yeah, you knew, too, like, I wish they had a shot of, like, Carl Malone and uh, Stockton afterwards when like after that moment happened and just the way that they kind of like yelled at Byron no. Russell because it was like remember that when they were playing the uh, Orlando Magic and then Nick Anderson said something like 45 or 20 yeah 45 being 23 and then Horace Grant's right. like no man shut <laughs> your <Stop>. mouth <laughs> <laughs> well another but another great example of that is of um you know of, of other players knowing and truly understanding what Michael Jordan is, is when uh, Larry Bird mm-hmm. had that stoic look on his face. Yeah. And the <laughs> entire stadium yep. is just erupting. And he's like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> guys, you guys need to chill. Uh, and that is actually one other thing that I wish they spent a little more time on is just this idea of Jordan playing against Bird as a coach. Because, you know, Mm-hmm. They had such a great, you know, interesting history. And uh, the, the, there's a little bit of it where at the end of the, the series, um, Larry comes by and, 
congratulates Michael and Michael talks still is still talking shit to him. Yes. <laughs> and you know He's a fuck you, fuck you bitch, yeah. <laughs> yes. For making after he lost the series. Me, yeah. Yeah. So for making me work for so making hard. Me work so hard. And uh but it just goes to show like, you know, that sort of generational difference, right? Because like, you know, he came I paid his respects, uh, and you know, and took it on the chin <laughs> like a man. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, they're but they're buddies, they right? Are, so for they, sure. they talk smack to each other all of the course. time. Of course. I mean that, that, that's clear. Like when, when Michael says uh says that, you can totally tell that's coming from a place of uh you know, love almost, right? And respect. I mean, I, there's no doubting how much Jordan respects uh, Bird. Yeah. I think, too, because Bird also, like, he had that face because Bird was also known to, for doing stuff like that as well, for getting those last-minute shots or a steal or something to swing the game. So Bird was also one of those guys that until the clock said zero zero zero, <laughs> it's not over. Like, it doesn't matter what the score is. Bird will find a way. Yeah, like, and, and a real, like, uh, well-known story about Bird was when they were doing, it was All-Star Weekend, Bird's part of the three-point shooting contest, walks into the locker room, and he's like, all right, which one of you is coming second? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, same mentality, right? Those guys are cut from the same oh, cloth. Yeah. Bird was, like, a serious, like, trash hogger, too, right? Like, he, he could uh, mix it up with the best of them, and... Uh, you know that that's another great thirty for thirty, right? They did a, a Larry Bird one uh, quite a few years back now. Oh, the Magic one, Magic and Bird one. Yeah, the Magic and Bird one. Yeah, which is really solid as well. Mm-hmm. The other thing about this episode uh, is uh, the it kind of closes uh, up the theme throughout of fathers and sons. Um, you know, we we get to learn more about obviously Steve Steve Kerr's uh, connection uh, to his father and 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 Jordan and, and, and Michael Jordan's situation with his father father, but also uh, Jordan's security uh, guys. You know, it was interesting that Michael had surrounded himself with an entourage that were older than him, were just like sort of old guys who he felt he could learn from and who he felt could keep him kind of on the straight and narrow, mm-hmm. which is I. You know that's no small thing, right? Because when you're catapulted into the stratosphere like that, it's very easy to be to have an entourage filled with like your you know dramas and turtles and you know just <laughs> your high school your buddies. High school buddies <laughs> you know exactly right, like you, you know little Tony from back in the day. Like you know those guys often end up becoming your entourage. And Michael did the exact opposite. And um, I think there's a lesson in there and also i think that they probably didn't play a, a small part in in, in his uh crafting his career and his in his uh image because uh, uh he, he used uh men with experience and you know other more father figures to help guide him through uh through his career which was fascinating to me i think part of that too those men were settled. I think when you have like young people, like when a lot of NBA players come in and they have the guys from the neighborhood, they want things. They want the car, they want the jewelry, and like they're 20 or they're all 20, 25 years old. The black security guard, Gus, he was a police officer for a number of years, so he'd worked like a regular job, so he had money and stuff like that. He had the wife, he already had kids, like all that stuff was already set up. He wasn't using Jordan as a meal ticket. You know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. And that I think certainly gave. Uh, MJ like clarity on who was uh, in it for the right reasons, right? 
um, like you said, the, these guys were established men, and, you know, family men for, for what it seems like anyways, for the most part. So definitely. Yeah, most people, they, yeah, like you were saying, Sam, they run into the money and they're like, they seek foolishness and Jordan was seeking wisdom. <laughs> and that speaks like volumes into the difference between true alphas, true leaders versus just players. Mm-hmm. There's a Seinfeld kind of thing. Like Seinfeld never really seemed like he, he cared all that much about the money. Like he was kind of just doing uh, his comedy thing. And like he will negotiate to the last dollar and the last penny and get every single dime. And Jordan did the same thing. Jordan's obviously quite wealthy. But once that negotiation is done, he doesn't care. Like he it's just he'll go out and play the game. And Seinfeld the same thing. Like he'll just go out and knock out the dude is like, What's the deal with toilet paper? And then it goes on. They understand their market value, but they also understand that they have to deliver at the same time. And once they've delivered, then it's the natural reward for what they've done. Well, ultimately, I think what they were doing, guys like Seinfeld and, and Michael Jordan, is they were, you know, negotiating their freedom. You know, they're negotiating their ability to do exactly the one thing that they want to do, which was play basketball unencumbered or do comedy um, without having to think about anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times, you know, if you're in a situation where, like, you know, the money is really tied to your self-worth and your ability to do your craft, the craft often suffers. And uh, that wasn't the case uh, with these two guys, right? And again, these are maybe the last of a generation, right? These are both guys who sort of, you know, flourished in the 90s. And I don't know that this, uh, they make make guys like that anymore, you know? They don't don't make celebrities like they used to? They do not. (laughs) They do not. Are you saying Seinfeld's the Michael Jordan of comedians? No, no, I'm not trying to say, I'm not making that direct comparison in, in those <laughs> terms. I'm just saying they there's they have a similarity in that. I'm not saying that he's the Michael Jordan of comedy necessarily. Maybe in terms of his business dealings, potentially. But in terms of the money and how it played into their craft, um, I don't think, uh, I think there's a fair comparison in, in terms of how they see money. Like, you know, Seinfeld doesn't flaunt his cash or it's not really about that. He still does uh, regular gigs just to do the work. Um, and it's not about, you know, hitting the road because he still needs to pay off his jet or whatever. Right on. But, you know, what if he was the Jordan of comedy? Would that be so bad? <laughs> I would say he isn't. But... <laughs> He's not. <laughs> He's not. He's not. So wait, before we go on to episode 10, then who is the Jordan of comedy? Dave Chappelle? Chappelle. I think Chappelle. I think it would have to be 100%, Chappelle. 100%, yeah, I think so. Do you, do you give up how much? 50, 50 million? million? Yeah. Because he didn't want to like sell his soul? Because he just wanted to do his it, craft, yeah. Yeah, he just wanted to be himself, and they were offering him a lot of money not to be himself? Yeah, I think I think if we had to make that comparison, Denny, I think Chappelle would be the Jordan for sure. That, that I think, is a hands-down... 100% for me. Uh, a little bit of a tangent, just watch his last two specials on um, Netflix. And uh, if that doesn't tell you um, that he's the goat uh, of comedy, then I don't know what would. You're talking Bird Revelation? Bird Revelation. And um, what was the other one called? Uh, I can't remember now. Uh, but actually... Oh, the Equanimity? 
I can't e pronounce the e word. Equanimity and something. It's like, yeah, it was a long title, yeah. but uh, and there's actually a third recommendation. Again, it's um, so he was awarded the Mark Twain prize for comedy. The uh, speech, right? The speech was amazing, uh, but Netflix released a sort of a behind the scenes, like the full length uh, a show with behind the scenes uh, of um, his day in Washington uh, when he was there to receive the award. And he went to a club gig and did a set in a club, in one of those small clubs. And it was a fantastic set where he talks about, you know, comedy and the, the craftsmanship of comedy and the art form. And he's, it's actually pretty profound, but of course he makes it funny. So anyways, this is a big tangent, but I, I would recommend all of those uh, if you want to learn about why he's the goat of comedy. Anyway, so that's, uh, that's episode nine. <laughs> well, we, we can transition from the goat of comedy to episode 10, which is the goat of wrestling with Rodzilla. That's my, <laughs> that's my title for this episode, Rodzilla. <laughs> Rodzilla. <laughs> yeah. Well, mine, uh, I didn't take a, a very comic approach to this episode. This uh, was the final episode. Uh, to me, it was uh, uh, Mike the Mystic. It was one of the titles I thought of. And then uh, I think the last one is just simply The Last Dance because um, it, it was ultimately The Last Dance. Mm -hmm. you know, one of the titles that immediately jumped out to me was like from the first scene. It's the Michael Jordan workout plan. <laughs> Got up stretched had a couple of beers and one cigar <laughs> and then play the piano to warm up and then play the piano that's yeah. right <laughs> that's true like goat man if you can bypass everything else and still kill it yeah that footage is so weird because he's so loose before the game and that game was so tight i honestly watching that game i thought like especially as the series went along, I really thought Chicago was going to lose that series. That They really seemed on the edge of actually losing that one. That was the first one where I started to doubt that they would not make it. Hmm. You're talking about game, because seeing the results of game one? Yeah, because well, he, he or... was going into it very, like, loose, right? And, like, when you see right. it, you're like... Because we've mentioned this before, how, like, Throughout the series and throughout Jordan's career, it always feels like the Eastern Conference battles were the big things. Getting past the Pacers, getting past the Pistons, mm -hmm. getting past the Knicks. And then it's like, oh, it's just the Sonics. Oh, it's just the Trailblazers. Here you go. <laughs> the glove gave me no mm -hmm. problems, right? <laughs> like It's those kind of stories. I mean, but this time, the second time around, I think it was uh, Aldridge. He, Dave Aldridge, he was saying how like the second Jazz team was much better mentally, physically. They were much better. And they seemed like it. Like when you start watching those games, and some of those games have started being rerun now. Uh, like I so saw, I've been watching. I watched the first three games. The Jazz are good, and it's like when you're watching it live at the time, you're like, I'm not a hundred percent sure the Bulls can pull this one out. Well, well, they didn't look that good in Game Three. Yeah, so but, that's true. That's valid. Yeah, but yeah, they were like kind of Eastern. Conference style games, they're like nothing. Yeah, that's that's a good over way to put 100, it. Yeah. Right, and it was just always like, besides actually game three, they they were really close games. Fifty four points for game three. That's right. That's <laughs> and that's the other instance where. Sorry, no, I'm I was just gonna like, I remember that when he said that, but I, it, it's just one of those things your brain can't process it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like fifty four points for the whole game. 
like 12 to 15 guys. A 42 point, a 42 point beating. Yeah. And that was another instance where we see Jerry Sloan and we get a, a little more of that dry wit right. in that press conference where he's like, this is really the score? <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to say, is this just a halftime score? Yes. <laughs> is this mic on? Try the veal. But yeah, and that, and that goes back to, like a lot of it goes back to, you know, Sam, you're talking about how, how kind of loose Jordan was going into into the, that series, yeah. especially just having that battle for Pacers. And then that, that was really nicely kind of connected with, you know, the idea of Jordan being such a, in, in his own right, like a, a, a Zen master himself, kind of uh, just knows how to be present. And what Jake alluded to in his uh, title. Yeah, I mean, I think he was uh, completely uh, present. And I think, you know, it's one of those things where like, when you're in such a high pressure situation, if you've done the work and you've done the prep, the best thing you can do going into battle is to be completely relaxed. And I think Jordan was just so well honed in terms of his mental game and his physical game that the only thing left to do was just relax. And I think that's part of why, why maybe he, he started that way. And, uh, you know, it was, um, it was something in, near the end where he talks about, uh, you know, the craftsmanship of, of the game and, and how, like, at the end, he, he realizes that you have to use your mind and your body. You know, when you're young, you've got energy and, um, you know, you use that to propel you forward. But as you get older, if you've played for a while, the mind becomes equally important, if not more important. And at that stage in his career, at that moment, um, he had managed to sort of bring those two together and um, and find that Zen place that, that you know, we're, we've been talking about. Maybe with the help of um, Phil Jackson, uh, he was able to sort of be completely present and in the moment. Well, yeah, and there was that great quote in that section where the, um, I think his name is Mark Vansel, who was doing the, who was talking about Jordan being that type of guy. Yeah, Vansel. Yeah. yeah. And and one of one of the things Jordan would always say would be like, "Why would I worry about a shot I haven't taken yet?" Yeah, that was a fantastic quote. That's one of those things that I should uh, post up on my mirror probably, <laughs> uh, because it is uh, it's it's indicative of just the mindset. Uh, that he had there was also that one scene like i think it was game two of the finals the last the finals with the utah jazz it's close to the end of the game and phil jackson just ripping the team and he's like you basically he's saying you guys suck you're not doing well whatever like um we're gonna lose this game and jordan keeps saying let's stay optimistic let's stay positive let's get this done and i think this is one of the things we don't talk a lot about with like especially major athletes like a Tom Brady or Jordan they're optimistic people by nature right because you have to be you're starting basketball from like grade seven and eight trying to get into high school trying to get in division one NCAA trying to play well during March Madness trying to get drafted high in the NBA like you have all these obstacles and things that you're trying to overcome and get to and you finally get the NBA and you get picked as a lottery pick so you now have to build up this team as we saw with Jordan in this whole series and you have to stay optimistic the entire time. You have to stay hungry. And that was, I think, Jordan, to connect back to like the stay present, was that Jordan was able to stay present but also stay optimistic 
in the present moment. And that's a huge thing that we kind of overlook. Oh, for sure. He was, uh, you, you, it's impossible to be a leader in any aspect of life without exuding some sort of positive mindset. People don't want to follow someone who is going to curl up in a ball and, you know, run with the tail between their legs. And you just, even if you don't personally feel it, or if you have some doubts or whatever, it's not something you can project uh, to others that you're leading because uh, then there's no hope. And, you know, the, the, you know, the, the series talked about hope quite a bit, um, especially when it came to Jordan's early years. Right. I mean, I think he kind of, one of the things he says in, in the wrap up is, is that, you know, hope uh, was, was part of what started all this uh, for him. He repeated it too. He said it started with hope and then he paused and he said it again. So you understood like it started yeah. with hope. Like he, that's one of few times Jordan repeated himself for all the stuff he said in this documentary. And I know maybe that might be editing, but he, he said that twice because he wanted to make sure that you understood. Like he never gave up hope no matter how many times people said he was just a scoring guy. He was like, he couldn't get it done. He couldn't do this. He couldn't do that. It started with hope. Definitely. That's why he's the goat. For sure. And there one of the, speaking of the goat, uh, the, the one great line uh, at the end uh, was uh, when he's celebrating, he's like, they can't win till we quit. That yes. which would have been a great title as well. Yes. <laughs> and that goes to the, you know, idea of being a positive person and a leader is, you know, understanding that like, look, the only person that's going to beat us is, is ourselves. So we just got to just, you know, get out there and, and go for it. And he, I mean, all that being said, he's still pretty sore that there was no game, you know, no going for the seventh championship. Yeah. Which I think you, I think you truly believe that he could have won it. Speaking of going for it, uh, Rodman kind of went for it, but didn't tell anybody <laughs> after game three. <laughs> Wow, you know, it was amazing to see uh, Coach Jackson just completely dress him down in that practice when he when he came back. Did you guys ca catch that when he, the camera was kind of far away? But he basically says something. They were on the huddle. Yeah, they were in the huddle, and he said, "You you've embarrassed us. You've uh, you've uh, what was the, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but you've 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 brought disrespect to our name or something like mm -hmm. that. Like that was pretty yeah. rough. Yeah, no, that I, that was sarcasm though. You you read that sarcasm? I I, I read that as sarcasm too. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, because it's it started off with like um, he addressed one of the oh, players. Right. His name was Dickie Simpkins. That's right. Yeah. He's like, "Oh, you weren't here, right?" We all like he basically said we all paddle him in the butt, and because he brought so much dishonor and right. whatever he said, and but then <laughs> that's when and then Jordan chimes in, but uh, that was a good like amount of money or something like right. that. That's a good amount of coin. And he's like, Rodzilla! Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which is Sammy's yeah. title, right? Because that, yeah. that's a great name, though, for wrestler, Rodzilla. <laughs> yep. Like, I'm like, why didn't he keep that after he, like, retired or, like, moved on from basketball? He should have <laughs> kept rolling with that. And I know there was no place to fit it in, in in this documentary, but, like, it was, I think it was shortly after that summer, he went back and then he fought Carl Malone in the ring. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Carl Malone ended up in the uh, WWF as well. Yeah. 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 So. But his name wasn't as cool as Rodzilla, though. Yeah. I wonder if he came, did he come out as the male? He must have. 
He must have. <laughs> Got the uniform and the sash. They didn't have that. Um, what game was it? It was the first time that the, the Jazz played um, the Bulls. And Pippen shut down Malone or he blocked a shot or something. And he said, mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays. That's right. Remember that line? I can't remember, yeah, what, I remember his, what the <laughs> shot was or what. Like, yeah, he shut. Pippen did something. And I was like, but it's funny because we talk about Jordan all the time. You could say that the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays, and then Karl Malone can't like go back and re- revenge. He doesn't. He doesn't sharpen the knife like Jordan. But if you said forty-five <laughs> ain't twenty-three, I'm like, oh, you just signed your death warrant. Do we remember if that was um, the ninety-eight season or the previous? I, season? I thought it was the previous season, the first time they played right. the Jazz. Because um, right. I mean, Pippen was joking, right? Like, obviously, so I think he was a lot healthier. Yeah. But I remember that it was a great line from Pippen. He usually doesn't chip in those ones. <laughs> but I think uh, Karl Malone won MVP that year. Yeah, yeah which is right. why Jordan got angry. So that could have. That's why he was angry. Yes. Yeah. So I guess that was the revenge. But Jordan kind of took the Zen Buddhism stuff to be present and stuff like that. But anything else like letting stuff go or anything like that <laughs> he held on to everything so <laughs> it's a very weird cherry picking like i wish they had a little bit more conversation with phil jackson about some of the zen stuff or the buddhism stuff or the native indian stuff or any because phil jackson kind of gave him a mishmash of stuff from like christianity from zen buddhism to native indian like literature movies yeah so it's this weird hodgepodge of I don't know, spirituality, or I don't even know what to call it. Wisdom, man. Wisdom. wisdom. And that's, I think, where if Phil Jackson had a longer interview, and it clearly was, he only had the one interview. Yeah. Phil's only wearing the one shirt through the whole thing. Well, yeah, the director, Jason Hare, did mention that uh, he literally only had uh, Jackson for one sit-down. Um, he showed up at uh, his ranch in the middle of nowhere, in, I think, Montana. Yeah. And uh, they'd done all this, like, you know, organizing with his with Jackson's people saying okay well you know we're this is the day you're going to come and you're going to get the interview and he shows up and Jackson opens the door and just looks at him and says, and says who are you and like you know Jason Harris like face just falls he's like oh my god he doesn't even know that I'm supposed to be here and then finally his uh wife or his daughter Jackson's wife or daughter comes through and says oh no yeah these guys are here for, for the interview and so you had to sit down for maybe three hours which is not a lot and uh which you know for someone like jackson to sit for three hours it was very uncomfortable because you know he's got you know back issues and like you know leg knees are bad and stuff so you didn't maybe have as much time as, as they would have hoped but um yeah i think you're right it would have been great to have a little more of insight into into his philosophy yeah i was gonna say they had that great moment where um i can't remember which utah jazz game it was but phil jackson's like play together you guys are it's you guys everybody you guys are going to be like um sheep against the wolves and don't forget to remember your breathing like it's a weird yeah that was you know what i mean like in terms of the beginning of game one game one yeah and it's just like no no coach has like remember your breathing or like stay centered or stay focused like you know what i mean it's like you better rebound or else we lose the game (laughs) (laughs) yeah dude would have you know yoga sessions burning the incense and sage Mm -hmm. and and of course, that amazing moment at the end of the documentary, which uh, I don't know if we want to get to yet, but it—he it, uh, is a true original. I think that was the amazing thing that I think even MJ mentions at one point is that you know the genius of Phil Jackson was his ability to bring all these different people uh, together 
uh, in for one mission. Um, and that takes a particular skill that not many people have. And, and it, it wasn't a fluke, right? Like, cause he did it again with the Lakers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that to me speaks to the true genius of the man. It's buy-in. Buy-in. Yeah. We touched upon this with like Jordan, like, you know, Jordan, you got to pass the Paxson or pass the Kerr or whatever. Maybe it's like, all right, fine. I'll do it. And that was already pretty much like a hurdle right there. But then you had to get buy-in to do the, the triangle buy into the the zen like i think even in this uh in episode 10 jordan refers to it as zen buddhism shit like you know what i mean like yeah, yeah when he's at the piano yeah yeah he's like he's not even fully bought into it but it's enough that, <laughs> that he's like eh, it's all right this buddha guy's all right like you know what i mean yeah, like I, for for michael it was, it was just a tool right it was a tool to use for his craft and mm-hmm. it, so i don't i doubt that he still uses that because he doesn't play the the game anymore but uh, he saw the value in it at the time to help him, you know, reach his his goals. Well, Jordan's really a Taoist, so that's a thing. And so in Taoism, you don't need labels, you don't need names. Like the true, uh, a true force doesn't have a name or anything like that. But I mean, going back to your point about how he was Jackson was able to manage all these different personalities, and it was indicated throughout the documentary how you know, Rodman had certain exceptions to the rules, but you needed to give him that in order to get the best out of him during a game. Yeah. And so even letting him go to, well, not that they let him <laughs> go wrestle, but sure, he got, you know, the, the, the typical fine from, the, from the, uh, the organization, but nobody was mad at him. Even when the media asked Jackson, like, Oh, you know, is this uh, causing any distractions for you guys with the way Dennis acted? He goes, he just went to the, he said to the reporter, "No, it's distracting you guys, yeah. not us." Yeah. And to, right. And then what happened? No, no. Sorry. Go ahead. Finish that. Go ahead. Well, then what happens in Game Four? Rodman has 14 rebounds. Yeah. So, so he, he did his job. An, he's a total enigma. Like it just, and I don't think Phil Jackson would have tolerated that from anyone else because of what you just said, Dennis. That he came off this WWF thing and just has an amazing game and delivers. And in an early episode where he was off on his Vegas, you know, trip and comes back. And again, he, he out practices the whole team. He was just, uh, he was just a complete enigma. That was his version of the Zen Buddhism thing. You know what I mean? Where like, that's how he needed to focus or clear his mind or whatever the phrase you want to use. But once he kind of like, Went to Vegas with Carmen Electra. He's like, all right, I'm good, guys, now. Like, I can play. Like, once he finished being Rodzilla, he's like, I'm good, guys, I can play. And I think that that's, again, like, the, the genius of Phil Jackson. I don't know if they ever actually said it out loud, but I think him and Rodman did have that silent agreement or that silent contract where, like, look, I know you're going to go rogue on me. That's fine. But when you when the when the game starts, I expect you 100%. And, like, and like Danny was saying, to Rodman's credit, he delivered every time. Jackson would have made a great filmmaker, I bet, like a great film Oh, for sure. Well. Yeah, yeah, that's a great uh, point. Uh, that is, he, what he did was essentially what a great director does, right? Yeah. But Phil Jackson, as a director, before everything wraps up, before you have the rap party, you got to have game six. You guys have any impressions or feelings or concerns or hopes and dreams after watching game six and th- that epic last shot? So what, do, where do you guys stand on the push-off? He didn't push off. <laughs> 
the pizza was poisoned it, it, and he didn't push off. Costas, I think, had it, you know, said it best. It was just like a maitre d' showing a dude to his table, showing him out the door. Bob Costas, uh, I just, I miss, I miss his uh, use of the language. Like, it, it's just so perfect. Uh, uh, such a perfect description of what happened. Uh, and yeah, his his momentum was already taking him that way. Yeah, yeah. A push off, he would have. His body would have reacted way differently. Yeah, from one from one angle, push off looks harsh. But then if you check out the other angles, it's just like, excuse me. Yeah, Jordan had that line uh, before they even showed the push off or the lack of a push off, where like he said that uh, Byron Russell plays on his toes. Yeah, that was amazing. That right. was amazing that he had that insight. That's the kind of stuff I just love. Is that he studied the shit out of that guy, and then he was just, on the list. He was on the list, exactly. He was on the list. So he knew his, he marked his target, man. Uh, and it was fantastic. Well, you see that later on too, because like he said, Carl Malone didn't um, keep an eye on the weak side, right? That's and right. so he was able to steal the ball at the end there. And Carl Malone's teammates, the Jazz teammates, usually yell out Jordan coming on the left or whatever. That's when you watch a game, you can hear them yelling out stuff like screen and stuff like that. There's codes and things that they yell out his teammates let him down at that point. So, yeah, um, I was also weird. Like that was a weird mental lapse. It was like two mistakes. I don't think people really caught that. Like the jazz players around them mentally lapsed because whoever was supposed to be guarding Jordan didn't really kind of like scream out. And then Jordan steal the ball and like taken off. It did indi- indicate like a lot of flaws in their setup, especially I understand that they were trying to isolate Malone, but I guess maybe everybody was in a rush and they're all just kind of all the other guys. They were just one run to their spots mm-hmm. and isolate Malone. But I'm surprised Stockton, who was feeding Malone the ball, he was just maybe he was rushing as well because he did. He could have called out, "Yo, Jordan's right behind you," <laughs> or not, or not do the pass. Yeah, right? yeah. It's like a horror movie, right? Like it's when you're watching it at home and like, don't go into the basement. But she can't hear you, so she goes in the basement. I'm like, well, that's what you get. <laughs> J- Jason's around the corner. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the, one of the things I did want to uh, touch on uh, with these last two episodes is just the filmmaking itself. It, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the the sound, amazing soundtrack uh, in this uh, series, and um, these final two episodes actually used very little needle drop music. It, it became much more, you know, traditional film score, which really helped with the you know the emotion and the in the drama. Of, I guess to help create this big finish, uh, and it, you know, it culminated for me in the, you know, those single piano notes as Jordan sitting on the bench, and talking about how he just um, quieted his mind, and um, and you just get that long silence before he, they win the game. Uh, it was just a great piece of filmmaking, and the other thing was that they'd built up just how crazy that stadium was with the fans and and you really got a sense of just how intense it was in there but then at the end when they can try to communicate just how shocked the fans were they cut the still images up until oh, now yeah. they're using just uh, you know video video footage or film or sort of film footage and then it just stops with these amazing still images of those and this lets you soak in the sheer disappointment in their eyes. It was, just it was devastation, great. not even disappointment. Yes, devastation. And it was just just great filmmaking. Um, and then 
and then we come out of it with the I think it's a Pearl Jam track, right, Sam? Yeah, present uh, tense. And, and what is it called? It's called present tense, which is uh, you know everything that we've been talking about, uh, and uh, it was just a great, great finish. Yeah, and even just even right, it actually the finish was great, and even the um, the intro to Game Six was great because they were it was that section where they were interviewing or at least what the uh, assistant trainer for the Bulls was talking. His name was like Wally Blaze or Blast. I don't know how you pronounce that name. But then it's like, he, they're still in the locker room. And Jordan's lying down. He's got his eyes closed. He's still got his like civilian clothes on. And then Wally's like, it's like watching one of those, those documentaries <laughs> where the, the lion's is hiding in the shade. You might see a kill today. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's crazy. Like, that's amazing. That's crazy. <laughs> And then they, they got it. They got that kill. Yeah, no, it was it, it was amazing. And I just, um, I think they, they did a really great job of just bringing this thing home. And and that last game was, was you know, I mean, it was something else. Uh, with just, the, you know, it's one of those iconic images. Uh, you know, that, that shot is just goes down in history in, uh, in terms of many iconic moments that he gave us throughout his career. Uh, but it was a great way to finish finish it off. Rodman was great. He's like, I know he's not passing. There's no Kerr. There's no Paxson. <laughs> he's like... Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's like... He's going to shoot this yeah. fucker. Yeah. <laughs> Rodman, like, knew. And the way he was speaking, you could tell, like, he could, like he was not lying. You know how sometimes you can't tell if people are being accurate or whatever? He's like, no, that's exactly the emotion that he's feeling at that moment. He's like, <laughs> all I got to do is maybe rebound this if he doesn't make it. And and the well and the other conflict of that game was Pippen's back. Yeah, right. right. He mashed it up after the, like the first. I think it was the first play. Did that? He, his back was already mashed up, and he did that dunk, mm-hmm. and he landed really weird on it. And so, you know, he couldn't really contribute that much to that game. But again, it went back to that strategy, right? And Michael was saying, like, okay, we just need you to come out and just be a decoy, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's all you do, that's all we need. And, you know, we'll, the rest of us will pick up the, you know, the slack. But he, he was like, we cannot do this without you. So it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing to see, and to credit Pippen's credit, that, you know, he did it, you know. And um, I, I, I imagine that was pretty pretty tough for, for him and the team. Well, yeah, and, but, but statistically speaking, too, Jordan scored 45 the rest of the team scored forty-two. <laughs> the rest. The only other player in double. The rest of the team. <laughs> yeah, the only other player that had double figures was Tony Kukoc. He had like fifteen mm-hmm. points. Wow. So what a game! <laughs> yeah, it was as close as a one-man show you can yeah. get. These two episodes, too, they mirror a number of key like Nike commercials, like. There was the one where um, Bob Costas is talking about Jordan fatigue and he's hitting the back of the rim. The Pacers game that he should have won, but it rimmed out. Like there's that commercial where Jordan's like walking to a game and it's slow motion and he's saying something to the effect, I have failed over and over again. I've taken this many shots at the end of games and they've all fallen out or rimmed out or whatever, but I keep hitting shots and I keep hitting. And even though I fail, that is why I succeed, right? And you see it and you're like, yep. Okay, <laughs> that's accurate advertising, <laughs> right? And then the other one that Jake yeah. was just saying, like in that slow motion when he hit that shot, um, and you see all the fan and everything like that. 
There was another one too where it was towards the end of Jordan's career where he was taking the shot and he was about to do a spin move and it just the whole commercial went into slow motion. Yeah. And um and it's just watching him just do this poetic ballet kind of thing, just going through the defenders and laying it up. And you can see how much the game is driving the advertising, not the other way around. Like as it's happening too, like like Nike basically these are all like storyboards for the commercials. Yeah. All Nike had to do was basically turn on the camera and just hit record like they were done. And that was the brilliance of Nike, right? Like, I, I don't think we ever saw stuff like that before. It was always just like, you know, whoever your main star is, he looks to the camera and starts yapping about whatever the product yeah. is. I mean, Jordan's had his fair share of commercials like that, but uh, I think, what, what was the the hot dogs that he was... Oh, something, something, so plump. His, they, uh, they, they, they plump <laughs> they when plump you cook up. them. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the brand, but I remember they plump when you cook them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Nike was amazing storytelling in thirty seconds. They were they were mythologizing him, and that's that's what ultimately happened there, right? They they found a way to create yeah, the mythology, way to put it. and uh, I think that was probably the first time that that's ever happened. And now everyone does it, but Nike and, and Michael's collaboration was the first time you you saw something like that. And I I want to point out too, like. Kerr said a really good point when he said uh, they were talking about that one time out and then Kerr's like being all goofy. He's like, yo, just pass me the ball. <laughs> I'll shoot it. I, I can get it, whatever. But Kerr, before he says that goofy line, he said he realized that Jordan knew that the camera was always on him. So it's like Jordan, yeah. like I sh- I'm sure for the year of um, this whole year of just having the cameras follow the bulls around, it didn't phase Jordan because he was already kind of used to it. I'm sure partly that's why he signed off on it. He's like, eh, whatever. It's just another camera. It's not like cameras just following me around for the first time. But I think because he he had the cameras on him, he learned eventually to think cinematically. You guys were talking about how like Phil Jackson would be a good like film director. Jordan, I think, learned how to think cinematically. Um, and you see those moments and stuff. And that's why the Nike stuff works so well. And the why at the end of game six, when he let that uh, like that wrist just hang there for that extra beat, we're like, of course, you know, man, like showmanship. Yeah. He was joking around afterwards and the piano is like, I had to push it with those two fingers, whatever, because I was like falling short. I'm like, whatever, son, you know, it. I know it like you knew that the cameras are on you and you just wanted to let it hang and just let everybody know I'm the goat. Well, that's one of those rare situations where I don't know how to put this, but it's like. No, there's nothing more poetic than the truth. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was true that he was he was tired as hell because he had to carry the team that game, and he was his shots were going short. But at the same time, it was just the right moment. And yeah, I'm sure he like you said he was aware of it too. Mm-hmm. But it but he needed to do that also. So it's just like that's that's the truth. Yeah. Like that's just like they call Paul Pierce the truth. No, that's the truth. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Right. Yeah. But he did it throughout his entire career though. Like the yeah. the shot against Georgetown starting from there, like say starting from there against in the in March Madness. Like just poetic moments after poetic moments, like just truths and like you you look at that the the Lakers ninety one shot where he switches hands midair. You're like yeah. it's just it, there's no argument, there's no rebuttal for that. You're like, Yep. <laughs> That's it. Like <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's like, yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then they win. That's it. Mm-hmm. 
Six. Jordan flashes the six fingers. Robin gives you the Bafangul <laughs> kind of gesture to the crowd. And then, that was yeah, accurate, then, too. That was also Rodman's truth. That's true. <laughs> so I tell you. Uh, and then, of course, the, the line that we talked about earlier is, uh, they, they can't win till we quit. And mm-hmm. uh, that was it. That was, uh, yeah. that was one for the ages. And there, here, there's another lesson for this generation. Those guys are popping champagne, no goggles. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, the sweet sting of victory, that's guy, right. just taking the just eye. Take one. Yeah, that's so true. I really like the footage where they follow Jordan back to that hotel room when he's in the piano and hanging out with all the boys, and mm-hmm. like you never really mm-hmm. see that stuff. And I don't why I don't know why NBC or ABC now doesn't show that stuff. At least show a little bit, like you know. I, uh, partially access. I think it's access. I think it's the. Uh, it's the players more than anything. And that sea of people in the lobby, in the hotel, man, that was like crazy. They, that would not happen today. No. They wouldn't let people in the hotel like that. But I also like the old school NBA games when they would win and they just mob the court. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like when the Celtics and stuff. The Boston Guard. Yeah, yeah, man. That looks so fun. I'm like, oh, I'd love to do that. But you know, but that that's the kind of thing that adds to the mythology of it, right? Like that's the kind of stuff that adds to the cultural impact. You know, a lot of times now everything's become so corporate and safe and, you know, everything has to be done within the lines. It kind of takes some of that, you know, some of that away um, from the game. Yeah, I mean, it's there's an argument for both sides too, right? Because like, even for 98, that's a little unsafe <laughs> because... Any one of those guys could have just like knifed Jordan in the yeah. neck. <laughs> Especially after they poisoned his pizza. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Mormon mom. Yeah, Mormon mom. <laughs> that's another documentary. And Mitt Romney was just uh... <laughs> <laughs> the bad fellas. <laughs> the bad fellas. <laughs> yeah. You feel that like. The way that this whole thing was set up by calling it the last dance, by Kraus saying if Phil Jackson goes 82-0, and 0, he's not coming back. They basically set them up for success in a weird sort of way. And Jordan alluded to that a little bit. If all that stuff hadn't happened, if, they was, if there was all these doubts of like whether they would resign them or not, uh, and it wasn't called the last dance and all this kind of stuff, do you think they would have still had the hunger and success? Or do you think uh, they needed this push and just knowing that this, this was a good way to close it out? Uh, you know, I think despite what... Jordan might say about like, you know, we could have gone for another one. I think there's something to what you're saying, Sam, because those were some tough series that they, it was hard fought. Yeah. Right? It wasn't an easy road. And I think if they didn't have that extra bit of fire, uh, that sort of thing they had to prove to the world or to the organization, they may not have gone through, uh, you know, you know, those, those tough, tough games. Yeah, it's, um, it's hard to say. I mean, even without Krauss saying that, those guys know they were getting up there. And knowing that the tension of even just Scotty's uh, contract mm-hmm. situation, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't know, like uh, Jackie McMullen, who's like a really well-known uh, NBA writer, she said, give me Jordan, give me Pippen, give me Rodman, Phil Jackson. I'm never betting against them. Yeah. So... I mean, on the one hand, I don't know if they needed the extra push, but that's the storyline, and it worked. So maybe Kraus was like the Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> of this whole of this whole film. You know what I mean? Just like fucked with everybody's heads 
<laughs> he got the film. That He's he the wanted. director. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you made uh, Krause the the uh, Francis Ford Coppola. You didn't make him Roger Corman. Yeah, he's he, he's more Louis B. Mayer, let's be honest. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I think uh, the first thing I thought of Coppola is because I mean, there's a lot of stories about Coppola just kind of saying whatever he needs to say to actors to make them feel a certain way. And the last thing I remember most vividly was when he did Dracula, and he had a lot of the actors kind of walk around with Nona Ryder. And just like cussing her out, <laughs> calling her a bitch, <laughs> just to make her feel bad for the next scene that they're gonna shoot or something. <laughs> Should we wrap it up then? Should we say goodbye to the last dance and talk about the coffee can scene? Um, yeah, I mean that moment uh, was just not only poetic for the the men who were there in the moment, but just for the documentary itself. It was such a great way to bring this all together and Phil Jackson talks about how his wife was a social worker and that she would perform this ceremony where you would write down your greatest fears and then put them in a tin can and then burn them and so we had the team do this and um, and it was very emotional. Sorry, but they wrote down what the team meant Right, to except them. yeah, in this situation that you know, Phil asked them to write down what the team meant to them and, uh, you know, and Michael comes and he, he actually writes a poem that was apparently very touching and moving in which we will, no one will ever know what that poem was except the men that were there. And uh, that to me was beautiful. It's the Pulp Fiction suitcase. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's that glowing suitcase. We'll never know what was in that burning tin can. And what's amazing is that it, it basically shows what a bond these men had. It, it ultimately you know, made their experience something that no one else could ever really repeat. And uh, it was just the most poetic way to, to end the series. And then the filmmakers come back to where we started with Jordan at the window, smoking that long cigar. And he uh, gets up and he's, uh, he, he walks off screen, like just like, you know, like some old cowboy walking out <laughs> into the sunset. It was just a beautiful moment. And not only goes back to the beginning in that way, he also goes back to the beginning, to the intro of Jordan, kid fresh out of North Carolina, talking about how he's hoping that he can just help create a team that's respected like the Lakers, the Celtics, the Sixers. And, but with that, and Jordan had a really great moment. Sam, what was he saying about hope? It started with hope started with hope yeah and then he said all it needed it started with hope and he said it twice and then he said all it needed was one little match to light that fire and that was that was really great they're going on visually with the, the whole coffee can not even yeah. just the coffee can the cigars too right like the fact that he said it started like it just started with one match when you see the first couple of episodes of like young jordan when he still has hair and he's winning dunk contests and stuff there isn't any cigars or uh, cigars at all but it's just when he starts winning the championships and when he becomes this kind of like elder statesman and he starts becoming this goat, the cigars become more and more prominent, right? And it's like that's the idea with the cigar is you start with one match and you light it up properly. You light it up slowly 
like a cigar is not something you rush through. It's not like a dinner or something like when you're rushing through or whatever. You do it slowly and it burns and it's fire and it's hot and it's amazing. So I thought that was really cool too. Just the whole full circle back to cigars and success. And we have uh, one final epic montage uh, that we, which they in the series did a lot of great montages, but they did one final epic one of all of Jordan's great moments, and um, it uh, it was just uh, you know you always hope when you're watching something that you've committed to that's this long that ultimately that the filmmakers are going to be able to stick the landing, and uh, and so everything was culminating to these last final minutes. And uh, I feel like they just, they, they nailed it. And it was just a, a beautiful way to, you know, ultimately, you know, say the, what probably is going to be the final word on the, on the myth of Michael Jordan. Yeah. It's rare too that Jordan gets an opportunity I know nobody talks about the wizard years. I don't talk about the wizard years either. We always eliminate and overlook the wizard's years. But just... But that's not what this documentary is about. Yeah. Right? It's about the bulls run. Yeah. And so I think that's what, like, the fact that you get to cap it off with that final shot in Utah. And then, that, like you said, Denny, that final scene where he's like, young Jordan's like, I want this organization to be respected. Like, you don't ever get to end this way. Kobe did a lot for the Lakers. But he played a regular, meaningless season game. Everyone let him score 60 or 60-something 60 points. And then he went home. Like, you know what I mean? You don't get to go out on top. And we're seeing this now. Like, Tom Brady's left New England Patriots and he signed with Tampa Bay. I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to bet against him. But at the same time, I'm like, I just don't know if you're going to be able to get back in the Super Bowl and just leave that one, like, wrist, like, in the air after, like, a good spiral and you win or something like that. I don't know if you get to go out like that. And that was a rare gift. It was the ultimate leaving on while you're on top moment. Which was partially facilitated by not only Jerry Krause, but Phil Jackson. Because towards the end of the doc, it was revealed that Reinstorf gave Phil another chance to come back. And Phil was just, it's time to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the way he said that, man, it was like, that was like wonder years for me, man. <laughs> when you find out like Wendy and Kevin didn't like end up yeah. together, it's like, oh, yeah. shit. Yeah. Truth hurts, yeah, man. Yeah, I know. I'm putting that in the coffee can. <laughs> um, but yeah, Brady's story, you know, it's, it remains to be seen, right? But I, I and I think, I think it's the, it's that thing that most great people have, right? Like, people who are maybe natural showmans, but in the end, they do it their way, man. Yeah. And they don't give a fuck what you think. It's like Frank Sinatra, you know? It's just like, I'm just doing what I want to do. And just so happens that whatever they do, people just love it. They go apeshit over it. And for Jordan, like going back to the Wizards, if we're going to talk about that, it's sort of like, he didn't do it for us. He did it for himself. And we just loved it. Anything else or no? I think uh, I think we covered it. So, so yes, we will do one final epilogue to record uh, following this episode of just last minute or last lingering thoughts and feelings and emotions. And um, 
Is there any other recommendations that you guys have? I know, Jig, you mentioned a couple already, but is there any other recommendations or anything related to this? I do want to add that um, the Jalen Rose made a, cu- a couple of appearances in episode 9, and he had to actually work with the director, Jason Hare, before on the Fab Five documentary. That's an ESPN film. It's not a 30 for 30. Uh, but if you want to watch that. And then Jason Hare also did the 85 Bears. And that's another thing, too, like as we kind of wrap up uh, talking about Jordan and the Bulls. Chicago at that time was an NFL town when he 100%, came. 100%, yeah. Right? So um, the 85 Bears were one of the best teams that they had, and they won a championship and all kinds of stuff. So they were coming up just as uh, Jordan was coming in. So it's interesting time, and I think it's kind of fascinating that George, Jason Hare, the director, did 85 Bears and The Last Dance, these two prominent Chicago stories. So I hope somebody asks him or hope down the line he does like a third one just as a trilogy. I don't know who or what it would be. It's got to be the Cubs, Cubs, man. there you go. It took them, <laughs> like, how many how many years? Was it over 100? Yeah, it was 120 or something ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. So that would be interesting. So those are my recommendations. Do you have anything, Denny? You know what? I would recommend, and I don't know, I can't remember if I've said this before, but I recommend to those who've never watched Jordan play, go on YouTube. There's tons of games from the 90s now up on YouTube. Full games, pretty decent quality for VHS. And just, like, don't just let the documentary be the only thing that teaches you. Just, like, watch the games, watch him play, and that's the truth. That's fantastic. And um, my uh, recommendation will be um, a little tiny book that Jordan published years ago. Um, and it's uh, it's a little uh, book. I think I must have picked up in an airport or something, but it's called uh, I Can't Accept Not Trying. Michael Jordan on the Pursuit of Excellence. And it's in his own words. And it's um, basically his philosophy on what it takes to be great. And uh, I'll read some of the sort of the chapter headings. This is a tiny, tiny book. You could finish it in probably, you know, 20 minutes if, if you're reading slow, slowly. But uh, chapter one is about goals. Chapter two is about fears. Chapter three is about commitment. Chapter four is about teamwork. Chapter five is about fundamentals. And then finally, uh, leadership. And it's a fantastic little sort of inspirational book and an insight into uh, Michael's uh, mindset, and uh, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. All right, uh, we'll shut it down. I'm gonna give us our uh, rap quote uh, for this episode. It's from Pete Rock. Don't be mad. Don't be mad because you can't do what I can. Like when Jordan went up, took that shot, and switched hands. Pete Rock. Awesome, fantastic. <laughs> what a great one to end on. <laughs> So this has been episode five of Jordan Ain't No Joke. I am Sam Yunin. And I'm JT. And I'm DC. Thanks for listening, people.